Hey, in today's episode, The Vanishing Jew, we discuss the fallacy of a child with three fathers listed on the birth certificate, preventing toxic positivity, the differences between anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism, and the vanishing American Jew. Why are so many young Jews walking away? I'm Moshe Shomer, and this is the Chavrusa Podcast, an exploration of timeless wisdom and ideas that have guided some of history's greatest men and women for over 3,000 years. A quick word from our sponsors. No, just kidding. Quick word about toxic positivity. And I think this, this would be worthy of being sponsored. Toxic positivity. This is from Dr. Susan David, author of Emotional Agility. Toxic positivity is forced false positivity. And it may sound innocuous on the surface, but when you share something difficult with someone and they insist that you turn it into a positive, what they're really saying is, my comfort is more important than your reality. Toxic positivity. When somebody brings forth a struggle or they mention something that they're going through, to, oh, just be positive and you know, there's a Yiddish expression, think good, it will be good. And and to to try to turn it into positive for the other person, it's a toxic thing. And you'll see it a lot on social media. A lot of like self-help gurus, influencers will put out some fluffy phrase that sounds, you know, sounds good on the surface. Like, oh, think positive thoughts and start your day with something positive and and all these things. But what if a person is going through something really hard? And and yeah, you're right. Sometimes it's all you need to do is dispel those negative thoughts and, and focus on the positive. But sometimes it's it's okay to accept and to acknowledge and to embrace the scenario, the circumstances that you're in, and not to sweep it under the the rug of of a false positivity. And it's something that good to be uh, aware of that make sure when you're talking to somebody it's not your comfort right it's much easier to deal with somebody else and to avoid that really hard and, and tough empathizing with the person's pain and to prioritize one's comfort over uh, the other person's reality and to really acknowledge that This recalls the core concept that we discussed once in the podcast about emotions, the Jewish take on emotions. Torah take is that emotions are, are emotions. They're neutral. There's no good or bad emotions. When somebody feels something, you feel frustrated, you feel anxious. You don't, don't get down on yourself the fact that you're feeling that. It's, it's an emotion. Now, how do you react to it? The way Dr. Epstein said it was, the problem is never with what we are feeling. The only problem is with how we relate to that feeling. So if a person reacts to an emotion in an unhealthy way, say, for example, neglecting the emotion, sweeping it under the rug, the proverbial rug, or becoming overly preoccupied with that emotion. So then that emotion is... in. In mystical works, in Jewish works, it's called it, it falls. The emotion fall. You're getting the the klipa of it. You're getting the shell of it. So, for example, love. Love is a neutral emotion. If the love is directed and it's being channeled into a, a 
a space that causes suffering, so then that love is said to have been fallen. The emotions are essentially good. It's the unchecked emotions that are dangerous. So the way to elevate the emotion is to really be is to really be zoned in yourself, like being objective and being honest and, and real with yourself as to where these emotions are coming from and what is a way to react to them that's going to produce the highest highest levels of, of satisfaction within yourself. What would be toxic is to try to get rid, to, to eliminate, to uproot a negative emotion, right? When you're feeling worry or, or fearful or anxious, to try to uproot it. We're not trying to ignore it, but instead to elevate it, to tap into it, to say, what is this? Where is it coming from? And how could it be manifested in a healthy way? And this is a journey. It's a, it's a voda. It's, it's a work of mindfulness, really being aware and, and present as to who you are and what's, what's driving you. Uh, this doctor, Dr. David, wrote a book called Emotional Agility. And she writes that the truth is that in the long run, the long run, this is actually going to be more sustainable. You'll have more emotional agility. You'll have the, you'll be able to navigate the lows and the highs in life, as opposed to if you sweep it under the rug. So right now in the moment, yeah, it looks like, oh, you're thinking positive and all things are good. But it, it just reduces your ability to really feel emotions because you're, you're creating a cover on top of all those things. I want to jump back into the fray a bit. On Monday, I had mentioned the idea of shortening the prayer service when possible. This was based on a event that happened on Monday, 17th day of Adar, where there are some communities that don't recite Tachnan on that day because there's a, a small reason that you could trace back to the times of the Talmud that there was a thought that maybe Purim could be celebrated on the 17th day of Adar if you miss it on the earlier days. And therefore, because there's a thought that maybe Purim could have been celebrated this day, we reduce Tachnan. And the question is, well, Purim can't be done on the 17th day, so why would uh, we skip Tachnan today? Tachnan is a supplication, it's a beseechment, it's a, it's a little bit of a, of a judgment call, as opposed to compassion call. And therefore, we don't... Uh, do it on the 17th day. Why not? And the idea we quoted from this old Sefer, Haman Hagen, that quotes the reasons and, and explains the reasons and the sources behind a lot of uh, Jewish customs today is based on this reason. And it and explains, Tov Ma'at Bekavana, that it is better to reduce the quantity of tefillahs, of prayers, if that will increase the quality of the rest of the tefillos. Now, just as a aside, this was written, the Maisei Yechiel is written in Romania in the late 1800s. Okay, so in the 1800s, in Romania, in Europe, they're writing that they're acknowledging, <laughs> this is reporting on the custom. So the custom came about with the acknowledgement that it is hard to focus, it's challenging in their days, the 1800s in Romania, to focus and really have intent and aim and 
and to be present in the moment. And therefore, if we have opportunity to reduce the quantities in order to increase the quality, we should do it. This is in Romania in the 1800s, not in in, in uh, the time we live in with the distractions today versus Romania in the 1800s have greatly, greatly, greatly intensified, in my opinion. Uh, so all the more so if they were around today. So that's one thing aside. Uh, but the the idea I had posted this in defense of the custom, explaining the custom because people were were asking about it. And somebody responded that this is a, a slippery slope argument. It's a slippery slope. And my response was maybe a drop in tense, but <laughs> my response was that the people that have this custom are thriving. The Hasidic um, kehilos, the Hasidic communities um, that generally follow this custom have not uh, have not slowed down one bit by this idea of trying to adapt, by trying to take the realities that we have and say it's a, it's a it's a new reality and therefore let's try to adapt it. So, for example, another example would be Pesuke de Zimra, which we spoke about uh, back in the podcast when we had those five ideas, came up with five novel ideas to introduce resolutions, to introduce to a current uh, prayer service today. One of them was to sing Pesuke de Zimra. Songs of uh, chapters of songs, literally supposed to be songs. That's what it's supposed to be, and it's not like that. It becomes a lip service in many an experience. And what Hasidim do is they lengthen the time to recite Pesukah Zimmer, even if that runs the risk of pushing back the time, the proper time to recite the tefillah in the morning, or the proper time to recite prayer in the morning is Mantfila. It's supposed to be within the f- first couple of hours of the day. Three hours, four hours, it's an argument in the, in the Talmud. Fine, depends if you're royalty, if you're a commoner. So let's say four hours into the day's Montfil. So w- what about if you're going to, let's say, meditate before you you actually start diving? Because you don't want to just jump into it straight from uh, getting the kids in, in carpool. And you want to take some time to first get into the proper mindset. And then... You want to build up. You want to build up the momentum. You want to start off with the brachos in the morning, the appreciation, the gratitude, the wonder and, and splendor of the world and of human biology. You look in the brachos hashachar, the blessings of the morning, the fact that we could see, that we could smell, that we could get dressed, that we could walk and wake up in the morning. These are incredible things. And you want to give it time and you want to allocate it time. And then you got psuche de zimra and you want to sing and you want to, get into it, it's going to take time, and what if that means you're brushing up against the time of, of that four-hour limit? And the custom has become, in in most circles, that they call Nusach Svar, uh, that Davin Nusach Svar, in the more Hasidic, European, Polish, Hungarian backgrounds, is that it's more important to prioritize proper kavana, proper intent, than the the accepted legal limit. Because at a certain point, there's a brush between the legality and then missing out on the whole point of it. So that's that's what they, that's how it's done. It's another example of, of feeling the tension of where it are today, where it's supposed to be, and figuring out something, innovating in a way that's able to 
reclaim and recapture the essence and, and improve the essence of what it's supposed to be. And the argument put back was it's slippery slope. So first of all, evidence is always always best shown by by the product of the theory. So instead of arguing on the theory, like look at the product and look at, look at what's going on since the 1800s in Romania, it's been bursting. Canada, obviously the, the Holocaust decimated so many of these these wondrous cities and communities, but in in, in terms of theology, it's it's bursting. Now, the slippery slope argument is interesting one because uh, it's bandied about a lot. It's bandied about. Oh, it's a slippery slope argument, and sometimes it's fair and sometimes it isn't fair. So, for example, in this case, I don't think it's fair because you have to assess each situation on its own, and this. Right here is a good argument. If it's a good argument, don't tell me, well, slippery slope, slippery slope. Because the the point is, is that we can assess each situation. There's a tension here between we live in an age of distraction and we want to have focus. And we want to focus on internal and the heart and what's real. And there's a lot of superficiality. So each situation we should judge. Is this a case that we're able to access more, more genuinity without, without going beyond a boundary and we could define what that boundary is and then assess each situation as opposed to the slippery slope when there isn't a boundary and there isn't a clear uh, assessment each scenario and there would be no difference between one case and the next case so for example in the news there's now a a, a throuple three three men that have become fathers of one child that was the uh the innovation, I think it was in, in England, maybe. And they are now three fathers. So a slippery slope argument here would be, is that what then is the difference between having four fathers for one child? Why not five? Why not seven? Why can't a child become a father and adopt somebody 50 years senior <laughs> that, that that would be a proper slippery slope argument because what you're saying is is that there is no uh, the the image of a slope you're slipping down a slope there's no way to stop there's no there's no differentiation there's no borders there's no there, there's no nuance to the situation right it's all it's all one thing once you once you remove a border so if you understand a family unit as a defined unit once you remove that unit then where are you going to redefine its border that that's what the slippery slope is saying the between the top of the mountain between the bottom there's no there's no pit stops there's no swerve and and uh you could hold and wait up to see, see uh see if people are following you so that's the slope as opposed to in this scenario where it's very clear it's very clear as what what the aim is what we're going for, what are the what are the boundaries, what has been the accepted way of of uh interpreting these Torah ideals, what has been employed in, in the past three thousand years, what has worked, what hasn't worked, and then you're able to assess each new idea, each new situation. So let's say all those five ideas that we suggested in in the podcast are they're all new. They're all different than how things are done today but they're not new in the sense that they all fit in with the with the aim and with the attitude with the kavanah with the with the heart 
with the ideal of what it's trying to employ. The famed Jewish comedian Groucho Marx once remarked that he wouldn't belong to a club that would want him as a member. And it's a great, in one sentence, it's a great description of modern Jewish identity. It captures all the aspirations, the fears, the longing for acceptance and the expectation of rejection of the 20th century Jew. The late uh, Shlomo Karlbach, famed for his uh, musical compositions. And he used to go around and he would perform on campuses and he would sing and teach students on campus and he said, whenever he gets to start talking religion, and he asks people on campus, it's open to everyone, he asks people, uh, what are they? What religion are they? If someone says they're Catholic, he says, I know they're a Catholic. If someone says I'm Protestant, I know she's a Protestant. If someone says, I'm just a human being, then I know that's a Jew. <laughs> uh, comedian Jackie Mason says, uh, Jews come to my shows. They laugh at my jokes. Then they shake their heads and they say, uh, too Jewish. We laugh. <laughs> we laugh at, at these stories because otherwise we cry. Otherwise we cry. The, the conflicted identity and the deep ambivalence that has been casting a shadow over Jewish life. Now, if you look at, let's say, the past 1,000 years of Jewish history, so beginning with the first Crusades and 1096. Jews have been attacked and murdered for being Jews. In the Middle Ages, when they were being attacked, only Spain seemed to have been the refuge. And then it too right, turns against the Jews and murdering and rampaging and eventually expelling all Jews. Then you had the Tachvatat, the Cossacks, and etc. So, so Hasn't been great, and, and pogroms were the norm. In 1789 comes the French Revolution. Unprecedented promise, the, the heralding of a secular state. I, that began with the three words, with, with the words, all men are born and remain free and equal in rights. And that hoped that right then, the Enlightenment, that it would end religious prejudice. Right? All men are born, remain free and equal in rights. Emancipation would give equality to the Jews. And this this uh, notion was quickly, was quickly disillusioned and, and abused because far from disappearing, anti-Jewish sentiment mutated into a new form. And in 1879, it was given a new name, anti-Semitism. And what was new about it, even the Jewish hatred existed well before uh, back to biblical times continued by the Greeks, by the Romans finding a special place in Christian theology but there were two distinct things about modern anti-Semitism the first is that it took place in the aftermath of the French Revolution in a secular culture because while in the past it was mostly anti-Judaism it was anti what the Jews believed in, what they did where in Christian and Islamic societies they stood apart from the dominant faith 
Right? So it was anti-Judaism. It wasn't anti-the Jews. It was anti-Judaism. It was only when politics were secularized and the prejudice was no longer given a, a religious justification. So then that hatred turned against the people themselves. Then Jews are no are now disliked, not because of what they believe in, because they might believe in the same thing. They're, they're cultured and assimilated, but for what they were. Not for their faith, but for the fact of birth. So far from curing prejudice, secularization, the Enlightenment, gave it a new and absolute character. Now it's something else. The second unique factor about this new form of hatred is that it placed Jews in a double bind, in a corner. Because in the past, Jews faced a, a clear choice. And even in the darkest days of, let's say, the Spanish expulsion, you had an alternative. You could convert and stay. Or if you don't want to convert remain Jewish, then you're out of here. Then you have to leave. And that's initially what it seemed like at the beginning of the, the Enlightenment, French Revolution, Emancipation, a secular equivalent of this, right? Become like us, and we will treat you like us. But it was deceptive. It was deceptive because the more Jews tried to be like everyone else, the more they were reminded how different they were. And the harder they tried, the more they conspicuously failed to become just like everybody else. Anti-Semitism was and is irrational and inescapable. So at the same time, Jews were derided for being communists and capitalists, criticized for remaining separate and for being too eager to join, both poor and rich, powerless, powerful. Voltaire complained that they clung to an ancient faith, and others, like T.S. Eliot, there's too, too much of free thinkers that have no faith. Anti-Semitism always mutated into new forms and providing a new object for new fears. It can't be defeated by rational arguments because there's no rational basis. And we still bear its scars because it's not only a form of hatred, but it's murderous in its intent and it's an effect. And a harsh reality of this hatred is that there's a secondary effect and that it could enter the minds of the people who are hated because Jews not only began to behave in a new way, but they began to see themselves in a new way. In the past, before this new form of anti-Semitism, when it was just anti-Judaism, they, they understood that they were different and, and there was a pride in that. But now, there's anti-Semitism, so they're, they're embarrassed to be different and they went great lengths to minimize that fact. They began to see themselves through how other people saw that. This brings to mind the Wednesday Kutzker, Wednesday edition of the podcast where we throw in a Kutzker. Kutzker says that the, the great uh, flaw of the spies in the Torah, when the spies went to Israel and they added in the report, we saw giants there and we felt like grasshoppers. They were so large. They were so intimidating. We felt like grasshoppers. And so too did they see us. They looked at us like grasshoppers. Says the Katsuka Rebbe, that's your problem. Oh, okay. We could, we could deal with the fact that they're huge and they're overwhelming and we're small. Okay. That's, that's fair. But, to say, and they view us as minuscule, they view us as as, as grasshoppers. That's when you're starting to see yourself through the eyes of others. So faithfully, what happened to these Jews is they became ambivalent about themselves. They, became ambivalent. they weren't sure anymore. Am I excited about who I am? And 
Thus, we have the modern conflicted Jewish identity. It was born out of that. And these have really been the two great tragedies in modern Jewish life. Number one, the external and the physical tragedy, the rise of racial anti-Semitism from the Kishinev programs in Russia and the pogroms to the Dreyfus affair in France, the final solution, the death camps of the Nazis made their names be obliterated. But the second was internal. The second was spiritual. Anti-Semitism did more than threaten and take the lives of the Jews, but it left a trace in, in the Jewish identity. The Jews began to see themselves not by people loved by Hashem, but as a people hated by Gentiles. And it turned Jewishness back from a shared mission, a journey towards the future, to a, a fate that we all suffer a similar history, a similar past. Right? From a, instead of a positive destiny, it becomes a tragic misfortune. Mordechai Kaplan accurately wrote, Before the beginning of the 19th century, all Jews regarded Judaism as a privilege. Before the beginning of the 19th century, all Jews regarded Judaism as a privilege. Since then, most Jews have come to regard it as a burden. And he wrote this in 1934, before the Holocaust. They haven't changed since then, these words. So from the earliest time in history, Jewish people have been caught up with tears. Pharaoh, Amalek, Haman, Nebuchadnezzar. So I summarized in Passover Seder, we say, It's not one person alone who rose up to try to destroy us. In every single generation, they're coming up and trying to destroy us. But there's a crucial difference because in the past, it was always, it was always in a framework. Of, of the destiny of the Jewish people. So you have the prophet Amos, right, who, who quotes and he prophesizes in the name of Hashem, you, the Jewish people, I've singled out of all the families of the earth. That is why I will call to account, call you to account. Right, the very fact of national distress always came with this promise of a hope that if Jews would return to Hashem, Hashem would return to them. You have the Kuzari or Yehuda Alevi, who writes that Jewish people are like in the limbs of a body. There are some limbs that are more sensitive. The heart is more sensitive than, than a finger. And therefore, it's more sensitive to, to illness and more susceptible to illness than any other organ. All right, so Jewish suffering always had, at, at the very least, a coherent inner logic. It confirmed the destiny of a singular people, unlike others outside the norms of history, often wayward and therefore corrected for its backslidings, yet part of a drama whose the final act, the final act is going to be its homecoming. Right, so Judaism in its history is a systematic rejection of tragedy in the name of hope that all these events take on a greater import. It's part of a bigger story. And what made modern anti-Semitism different from its precursors, when it became anti-Jews instead of anti-Judaism, was not only that it was secularized, but it's also in the victims. Because it was happening at the same point in time that the Jewish people were putting their their hopes and their faith not in redemption, which is a, a religious value, but in emancipation, which was secular. And the result of 
placing the, the hopes in the emancipation for, for civil rights, for social equality, for a place within the mainstream European culture. Result of it left so many Jews bereft of an interpretive scheme to understand everything that's happening to them and to integrate it within their self-image. So instead, they're now judged by purely that European culture, which overwhelmingly was negative, shatteringly so. So already in 1882, the Russian Jewish writer Pinsker right, speaks of the Jew as a ghost amongst the living. Because that's how how they were viewed in the society that was put so much hopes in the the emancipation, in the Enlightenment, that in itself defined the Jews in, a, in an overwhelmingly negative sense. And that's how they began to see themselves. And then with, with the the complete and, and utter devastation and disaster and, and unfathomable tragedy of, of the Holocaust. So even if we're now 70 years post that, but that collective crisis of that magnitude, the aftermath lingers on. And still today, we're uneasier, as Jewish people, we're uneasier about who we are than any other group in the Western world. There's nothing natural about the the rates of of outmarriage in the diaspora or the extent of secularization in, in Israel. The residual traces of a profound disturbance within within the people. And so you look at the mindfulness movement now. That its leaders, and this is becoming a massive, a massive movement and a, and a popular one. And while I'm not a, an expert, I'm definitely a, a fan and definitely an enthusiast. And I heard from my, my dear friend and, and mentor last night, Rabbi Jack Cohen, who was talking to Maryland students as part of our program. We're having a program now on mindfulness from a Jewish lens. It's called Focus, 10-week program, awesome stuff interesting speakers and, and great curriculum. Um, and Rabbi Jack was, was saying, how, first of all, the mindfulness movement, how it's dominated by, by Jewish leaders. But also by the fact that all those leaders are self-identifying as citizens of the world and not particularly Jewish, even though the teachings itself, all these mindfulness, all these mindfulness teachings are so much of them are at the very core of what daily Jewish life is, of mitzvot. All mitzvot are really exercises in meditation and mindfulness. And it starts to give light to, to understand, right, in the introduction to the series, the letter in the scroll, we quoted from the, the very opening to the book where Rabbi Sachs has this idea to send out a survey to successful Jews in all different areas of life different types of success and ask them what being Jewish meant to them and from the very few that responded the course is an utter failure and nobody uh, really responds and the people that do respond say it's just like that's how I was born I was the same way if I would have been born in New Jersey versus Pennsylvania and the what lies behind the, the these voices that you're unable to say anything positive about what being Jewish means to them 
they were unable to say anything positive what being Jewish meant to them. It's not accidental. Right? And and the fact that the non-Jews that we quoted in that same episode, the non-Jews extolling and praising what being a Jew means. Right? The fact that there's such a dissonance behind that long is a long and painful history of more than a century of anti-Semitism that has left its mark on the Jewish identity. And that history is what has happened in the past couple of hundred years is really the barrier between us and our past and preventing us from really understanding who we are. And it can't continue this way because ambivalence cannot sustain an identity. There's a great tension that is ultimately going to be resolved by people walking away and ceasing to be Jews. And that's what's happening now. Because that ambivalence creates the tension and the tension is not worth enough to stay if you don't, if you're not excited about it and therefore you walk away. And it's a tragedy for, for many reasons. Most of all though, because it makes no sense. It makes no sense in terms of who we are and where we are. In Israel we have a home. In America we have freedom and equality. So even attitudes that were around two generations ago that we could understand right, are now no longer relevant, really. Right? That, that deeply conflicted idea of, of, of trying to dedicate oneself to prove that Jews are no different than anyone else in, in, the, in the post-era of the, of the Holocaust. Right? Just being like secular Maranos, that you're outwardly like everyone else and inwardly and very privately being Jewish. Right, visible as human beings, invisible as Jews. So that may have made sense then, but nowadays it's a new landscape and we're, we're perhaps the first, we have the, the opportunity now to face and resolve this crisis of ambivalence. Now the facts on the ground is that the Jewish community in the United States is disappearing. It's disappearing and it's disappearing fast. Disappearing fast and these are... Statistics are there. In 1920, intermarriage affected no more than 1% of the Jewish population and it's now at 70%, roughly. The rates have risen 10 times in less than 30 years. It's disappearing faster than any other society has ever vanished before. The same is happening in Britain. Jewish community has lost 10 Jews a day, every day, for more than 40 years. And in the past, Jews left Judaism to avoid prejudice and discrimination. And today, in, in the United States, in Britain, there's no terror, there's no threat. It's not why Jews are leaving. Right? Jews have freedom and equality, are among the highest educated and, and mobile of any ethnic and religious group. So, maybe... In previous generations, baptism was the entry into European culture. But today, no culture needs the entry ticket. And yet, the, the assimilation is happening even faster. And maybe you might think, okay, y'all argue. No, really, Jews really always wanted to leave, but they couldn't leave in the past. They simply didn't have the chance. But this isn't true historically. For millennia, longer than any other minority, the Jewish people stayed true to their identity. They resisted the advances of Christianity and Islam under great 
threat and pressure. They preferred poverty and persecution to acceptance that was be bought at the price of denying who they were. Time and time again, in 12th century Islam, in 15th century Spain, in the days of Martin Luther, Jews held firm to their faith despite every inducement to the otherwise. Now maybe you want to say, ah, today's society has made Jewish identity superfluous because what society thinks of today is all those Jewish values that we could sort of synthesize. They're all of the same, so we could just blend in because... Jewish values are, are current values. <laughs> you can't be more wrong. This couldn't be more wrong. For 2,000 years, the Jews have represented difference. The prophet Bilam, right, the non-Jewish prophet, said, A people that dwells along, dwells alone, not reckoned amongst the nations. As maybe you'd think, oh, well, today... We live in a pluralist, diverse, multicultural society where everyone's a different, any, anyone's a minority. So maybe it's that, it's not that Jews are ceasing to be Jews, but that everyone else is becoming Jewish. And, and it's, it, it's not true. It's not true. The liberal democracies of the West are abandoning the very values, very values of Judaism, the family, the community, the sanctity of human life, the concept of an objective set of moral values. The idea of a covenant that links the present to the past, that the past. Carrying on a story of the past. These ideals in, are in danger. They're not, they're not the reigning, the reigning uh, mode of thought. Society is not becoming more Jewish, but manifestly and rapidly less Jewish. And if you contrast it to other faiths, uh, you look at the recent polls, Gallup polls, right? How important is religion in your life? 57% of white Catholic, 47% of white Protestants, 74% of blacks against Jewish people. 34% maybe. Four out of 10 Americans claim to attend religious services weekly. Only one in 10 of American Jews. And that's the tragedy. The Jewish people, once loyal of all nations, have become the most casually indifferent to our past. We were once, once the most God-intoxicated of all people. We've become the most secular. We used to find peace at the candles of a Shabbat table. And we used to find Hashem's presence in the simple deeds and ordinary lives. We've become restless seekers of salvation in every faith other than our own. Like I mentioned in the mindfulness movement. But in the 60s, from different sects to sects, Scientology, psychotherapy, Buddhism, New Age mysticism. Homeless in the world. Homeless in the world are our predecessors. The Jewish people were always at home in their faith. But today, at home everywhere, we have become paradigms of the homeless minds. And add in that after a lapse of almost 2,000 years, we have at last recovered our national sovereignty, our indigenous homeland, and we've now been rescued from every place where we face persecution in Iran, Iraq, Yemen, Romania, Russia, Ethiopia, Syria. Jews find themselves once again in the Holy Land. For the very first time since the destruction of the Second Temple, every Jew has a home. Right? When you have to go there, they will let you in. And for generations, we've been praying more in hope than expectation. Right? The great chauffeur for our freedom. 
Misonis lekabes gali yoseinu raised the signal together exiles. Kapsinu yacha mehira me'arba kafisa aretz gather us together quickly from all four corners of the earth. And we're living and we're seeing it beginning to happen. Uh, we've seen events that the greatest prophets of return, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, can only dream of. And of course, none of this negates the Holocaust and the tragedies. But it allows us at this point in time to move beyond it. The Jewish people no longer live today in the valley of the shadow of death. Overwhelmingly, Jews live today in Israel, United States, countries free of the legacy of that dark past, even in Germany and the former Soviet Union. Right, the two countries that did the most to seek the extinction of Jews and Judaism. There's a freedom to practice our faith that we didn't know before. So what's wrong in Jewish life today? What's wrong? So we forgot that it's good to be a Jew. It's good to be a Jew. It's a story of a young guy whose life was changed in 1958. 1958. He's living in Queens. Queens, New York. One of the suburbs. Kew Gardens. Maybe it's Kew Garden Hills. And 1958, a Hasidic rabbi moves into the community. Now, at that time, in those days, there was no semblance of Hasidic life. So here comes in a bearded rabbi. He's wearing a long coat, fur hat. And it strikes a very exotic note in this young guy's eyes. He's not, he's not religious very much. Uh, he's fascinated by the new arrival, and he's bored by the services in his local uh, in his local synagogue. So he decides he's going to go pay a visit to this new uh, Hasidic rabbi who's, who's open for services. And he finds it strange, but it's intriguing. And after the service, the Hasidic rabbi comes over to him and he says that Passover is coming soon. Passover is coming soon. And on Passover, you're supposed to have a child that asks the, the questions that begin the Seder service, the four questions. And he says, I don't have a child. All I have is a child who could ask. I have a, a daughter that's a few months old. Um, but I want a child that could ask the question, would you join my uh, my Seder? Would you be kind enough to join the Seder? So he's surprised by the invitation, but he says, okay, I'll come. I'll come. And he comes to the Seder. At the Seder, the baby's there in, in a baby carriage right by the table. They begin the Seder. Um, he, he asks the questions. They start reciting the Haggadah. And then half hour into the Seder, the baby wakes up and starts to cry. And the rabbi asks his wife permission. He asks the guests, do you mind if I take a quick break here and try to soothe the baby? Sure. And the rabbi goes to, to the next room and the young man hears from the dining room, he hears the rabbi singing. It's a Yiddish song, and he's singing it over and over again, and dancing gently around the room, rocking the baby. And the baby stops crying and goes to sleep. And the young man's very intrigued, because it was such a jarring sight, the rabbi singing over and over again. It was such a beautiful melody, and he's trying to figure out, what's that song? What does that song mean? It sounded so special. And it turns out the rabbi was from Warsaw. He was studying there. He was in yeshiva when the uh, when the war broke out. And he was soon transported to Treblinka. The worst of all places in the world today. 
Welcome to Treblinka. Your blood turns to ice. Your mind freezes. Treblinka, the rabbi was living in. Number tattooed on his arm. Thankfully, he got out of Treblinka, taken to other concentration camps. Somehow survives. Somehow his wife survives. And his wife, at the time it wasn't his wife, but at the time, um, in the camps, the Nazis experimented on her, and she wasn't able to have children after the war. American doctors said that based on what the Nazis did to you, you can't, they made you infertile. But they didn't give up hope. They visited specialists, and they went through years of exploring all medical avenues, and more than a decade later, later, 11 years later, it happens by a miracle. So it seems to them, she conceives. They have a child. That was the child. That was the daughter that the rabbi was holding. But that wasn't the, the story, the part that changed the young man's life. What did it? And eventually the young man became a rabbi, which he is today. He slowly understood the words that the rabbi was singing to his baby as he danced with her. What they meant, what they signified. What were those words? Sung over and over again to a baby by a rabbi who lived through Warsaw Ghetto, who lived through Treblinka, passed through the gates of hell. It's good to be a Jew. It's good to be a Jew. This is what's wrong today. This is what's forgotten. We've forgotten. It's good to be a Jew. Later, this young guy became a rabbi. He's like Reuben, his name is. Long-time rabbi in South Manchester. They moved north, and I believe he's retired, but he's a popular author and speaker and consultant. It's good to it's good to be a Jew. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Harusa. If you enjoyed, before you even subscribe and rate it five stars and review and all that, listen to the other episodes please reach out to me let me know your thoughts connections ideas questions critiques my number is 347-893-4467 chavrusapodcast at gmail.com or across social media channels thank you have a wonderful day overflowing with happiness